We're in Jeremiah chapter number 10. I was blessed this morning by a thought, and I'll give you that thought just as a, as a beginning here. I like A.W. Tozer. I like to read his writings. Uh, I've learned much from him. And Tim, my brother-in-law, bought me a Bible that is, they call it an A.W. Tozer Bible. It's a, a regular Bible, but it has his thoughts and some of his notes commentaries linked with some of the verses in the, and that's the Bible that I used to study with at home. And so this morning I was looking for, uh, I wanted to know some background information on Jeremiah, so uh, at the beginning of each chapter or each book there's background information, and so I was going to that, and I saw a footnote, and I'll paraphrase what he said this morning, but it's, maybe it'll be a blessing to you. In the Bible we often come across ahs and ohs. Oh Lord, ah Lord, we come across those in the scripture. Now, when you are trying to think of theology, which is the study of the facts about God, where do you put the ahs and the ohs? Well, there's no place to put them in theology because theology is facts. And the ahs and the ohs are an exclamation. They are an emotion which does not fit in our categorization of facts. But in our thoughts of God, there ought to be emotion. There ought to be wonder. There ought to be awe. There ought to be reverential fear. A person who knows all the facts of God, but doesn't have the ahs and the ohs, is missing something that they severely need. A person who can approach God glibly in prayer is actually just praying to themselves because they do not know who God really is. So ask yourself this morning, do you have ahs and ohs in your, with God? If not, you might want to figure out where you lost those. This morning, uh, that thought was a blessing to me earlier this morning. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And this morning we're going to read a few of his O's this morning. Just to give you a heads up, we're going to start reading in verse number 1 in chapter number 10. Just to give you a heads up, Jeremiah is describing the process of making idols. So you, just, so you have an idea of where we're going here. What he's talking about. He's talking about making idols in Jeremiah chapter number 10. Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, <clears throat> Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them. They cannot do evil, neither is also is in them to do good. For as much as there is none like unto thee, O Lord, thou art great, and thy name is great in might. Who would not fear thee, O king of nations? For to thee doth it appertain for as much as among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like unto thee. They are altogether brutish and foolish. The stock is a doctrine of vanities. 
Silver spread into plates is bought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of the workmen and of the hands of the founder, blue and purple is their clothing. They are all the work of cunning men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. We're going to have two passages of Scripture this morning. We'll jump to the second one later on in the message. Simple title this morning, Five Truths About God. Five Truths About God. Let's pray. Father, if we had a thousand years to discuss, we would not discover one necessary usable truth about you that would have any bearing in our life. But if you by your spirit would open our hearts, then every person in this room could have what they need today. And Father, that is so much more like you. It is not like you to leave needs unmet. It is just like you to meet people where they are and move them forward drawing them to yourself. So we come because of your nature and ask that your spirit that you gave for such a purpose would do what the Lord Jesus purchased for us, meet our needs today. On the individual level, we ask. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning's message will be a very straightforward message, and it will have application to every person here, whether this is the very first time that you ever walked into church in your life, or whether you have been in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, every day of every week of your life. We're going to look at five basic truths about God. Three are listed here, and the other two are in the next passage we're going to deal with. The first three are found in verse number 10. It's very straightforward. But the Lord is the true God, number one. He is the living God, number two. And an everlasting king, number three. So we'll look very straightforward at these three truths and again turn to two more later uh, in the message. Truth number one, the Lord is the true God. The Lord is the true God. Last week or the week before, I can't remember now, when I was watching a remake movie of an old book that I read when I was a kid. And in this movie, the character, the main character is actually supposed to, in the book, he was actually a very solid Christian. Um, But in the movie, he is a Bible believer. He meets a cannibal on an island. Now, as only Hollywood can do, you got to watch those guys all the time. As only Hollywood can do, this Bible believer is mean and all of this, and the cannibal is a really nice guy. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> uh, this is how they do things all the time. And so in through the process, this Bible believer comes to, he's keeping a journal, and uh, he's narrating this thing, and he comes and writes in his journal, 
I have found by dealing with this cannibal that there are many paths to God. At that point, I turned it off. Now, in our world, that thought is nice and it's pleasant. It's non-confrontational. It's acceptable to say that there are lots of paths to God and we are just worshiping him, just calling him by a different name. And that's a very common thought in our society. Only one problem with it. It simply isn't true. It's just not. In the world, we as God's people may be considered narrow-minded and bigoted. But the fact of the matter is, I am no more narrow-minded than the Bible. I believe the Bible. I believe what it says. It may seem nice and pleasant to believe that there are many paths to God, but it isn't what the Bible teaches. I cannot believe the Bible and believe that there are all kinds of ways to heaven. Either the Bible is true or the Bible is false. There is no middle ground. I have to believe what the Bible says entirely or I have to reject it entirely. I don't have any other option. It doesn't give any other options. I personally believe the Bible is the infallible word of God. I believe that that fact has been proven beyond any reasonable doubt. The unity that the Bible has from cover to cover, even though it was written over a long period of time with the 40 different men writing it down, it is unified from one end to the other. It is historically accurate. Over 3,000 prophecies have been fulfilled. If it's not God's book, how did that happen? Over 3,000 prophecies have been fulfilled. The way that it is written even. Look, I'm an avid reader. I can't even begin to tell you how many books that I have read in my life. I don't consider the Bible a book. It has pages, it has ink, it has paper, but that's the only similarity between it and all the other things I've ever read. It is in a category all by itself. It is not this, a book like all any other book is. But you know, Quite a few years ago, I quit trying to convince people that the Bible is real. I, I quit trying to convince people that it's true. I let the Bible do its own convincing. So if you sit here today and you're wondering, is the Bible true or not? It's fair to wonder. Okay, that's legitimate. You're staking your soul on something. You ought to, you have, the chance, you ought to have the opportunity to wonder about it. Okay, so get, let me give you a, a, a test here. Get yourself a Bible. Turn to the book of John. It's about halfway. It's in the New Testament, the fourth book of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Open it to the book of John. And sit down before the Lord and say, God, I don't even know if you exist. And I don't know if this book is true. But I want to know. And start reading. Carefully reading. And then the next time when you sit down before the Lord, you say, God, I don't know if you're, if you're real or not, but I'm here to know, and I'm going to read. Tell me whether this is true or not. Convince me. I have every faith in God's ability to convince you. I've seen him do it dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Why? I don't have to convince you. He's God. 
And if you'll give him half a chance, you'll know that this book is true. That this book is his word. I think that's a fair, legitimate way to find things out. So what does the Bible say about many gods and many paths to heaven that everybody seems today to want to purport and say this is what it is? I'll tell you exactly what the Bible says. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now these are not verses that I pulled out of the book, you know, kind of twisting out of context. It's what the book says. From cover to cover, it's what it says. Jesus Christ is God and the only way to heaven. There are not multiple ways. It is Jesus Christ or not at all. That's what the Bible teaches. If it's true, then that's the way that it is. It's not popular or socially acceptable to believe this, but it's what the Bible teaches. And I believe it. There is but one true God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Bible. There is one true God. That's fact number one. Number two fact. He is the living God. He is the living God. This passage reveals of scripture here reveals man's desire to reduce God to some non-living thing. They want to reduce him to a block of wood, a piece of stone, or a lump of metal. You know why? It's very convenient to be able to pick your God up and put him where you want him. In fact, the passage says you can nail him where you want him to go. That's very convenient to have a God who is so powerless that you can do with him whatsoever you please. It's very common for man to do this. It's easy to allow ourselves to reduce God to some type of good luck charm, to make him to be some positive force in the universe, to think yin and yang is the balance of evil in the world, or karma. My friends, don't let yourselves be duped by this type of thinking. God is the living God. He isn't a statue. He isn't a good luck piece. He isn't some positive force that is a result of your positive action. He is the living God. He sees everything that you do. He knows everything that goes on. We don't worship some rock or some tree or some hunk of metal. Our God is living. He's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. He's omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere present. He's omniscient, means he knows everything. He is immutable, means he's unchanging. He knows, he sees, he communicates, he judges, he cares, he watches over. He's the active sustainer of the universe. He is the living God. Now, while we're on the subject... On Sunday afternoon, I go home dead tired. Preaching may seem easy to you, but you ought to try it sometime. In fact, you can have this <laughs> that's open now. Here you go. It is actually very tiring. And so basically when I go home, if I can drive, I drive home, but it's almost all I can do to drive home, and I just collapse in my easy chair when I get home. 
So typically, I'll throw in some mindless black and white television show or movie and just let it run, and I sleep through it. So I threw it. <laughs> I threw in this thing, and I thought it was an old world, black and white World War II movie about the orphans they were hiding from the Germans, which is one of those mindless things I, I listen to as I'm sleeping. It wasn't that at all. I don't know if I'd ever seen the thing before. I don't know. My sister recorded a bunch of stuff for me. It had a religious base to it, and I never could figure out if the movie was for or against this religious thing that they was dealing with. But one thing that I did notice through my snoring is... Every cross in the whole thing that they showed had an image of Jesus Christ hanging on it. My friend, that is not accurate. It's not accurate. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Yes, I believe he hung there in shame for the sins of the whole world. Yes, I believe that he suffered and died on that cross. But my friends, he is no longer there. He died once for all. He no longer hangs in open shame. He no longer lies in a cold, dark tomb. He rose from the dead. We serve a risen Savior who now sits at the right hand of the Father. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. My friend, he is the true God. He is the living God. And number three, he is the everlasting king. He is the everlasting king. Anybody tired of political ads yet? You don't understand this when you're a kid, but as you get older, you'll realize that American politics runs on a two-year cycle. Fortunately for us, this current cycle ends on Tuesday, and the new cycle starts on Wednesday. <laughs> and, uh, and here's how it goes. Everybody is hoping for change in the next two years. Everybody's hoping for change. The one side is hoping for a complete upheaval, and so they get their power back. And the other side is hoping to extend that power. Everybody is hoping for change. Every two years. And as soon as the one cycle's over, we start another cycle hoping for change in the next two years. I will refrain from making any comments on that whole process. But the history of the world is full of such workings for political change. Some of this change is tried to be brought about by the will of the people. Some is done by dishonest means. Some is done by lies. Some is done by violence. Some is done by murder. The whole history of the world is this, by the way. Always men seeking to change their government. They hope and work for that change. Man's acceptance to God's rule hasn't been any different than that. Think it through. We're always trying to change the government. What has man's reaction to God's government been? Adam in the garden has one rule. What does he say? I ain't going to do that. Discards God's rule. Noah. 
they are so disobedient there that God has to wipe civilization off the map and start from scratch again. Shortly after that, we have the Tower of Babel, who they're all going to gather together, and we are not going to let God separate us. On and on and on and on. It's the history of man to try to overthrow not only human government and change human government, but to control and overthrow God's rule. In the Old Testament, it's full of prophets and messengers of God that were killed. When God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, it was no different. He was despised and rejected of men. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. In essence, they said, we will not have this man rule over us. In fact, they held a mock trial where they had paid witnesses to perjure themselves so that they could sentence him to death. Man is always looking for political change. Now, in this world, you can hope and work for that change all you want to. But let me state categorically at this moment, the Lord is the everlasting king. I know that if you listen to the news, it sounds like evil may triumph. That's what it sounds like. If you look at society, it may look like evil already has the upper hand. But let me tell you, so did it in Noah's day. So did it at the Tower of Babel. So did it at Sodom and Gomorrah. The simple fact is, Jesus Christ is king. The everlasting king. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Yes, at this moment his name is cursed, his truth is despised, and it seems like everything that is against God is exalted. But my friend, make no mistake, someday soon, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You are not going to overthrow him, you're not going to outlast him, you're not going to change him, he is the everlasting king. So we have three truths about God. The Lord is the true God. The Lord is the living God. The Lord is the everlasting God. Do you know that's a little intimidating? Actually, it's a little scary. Look at verse number 10. Read this thing in totality. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. An everlasting king, at his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. You don't have any choice as to what God you serve. He is the only one. He isn't some force or piece of stone or wood that you can control. He is a powerful, awesome, living God. It is what it is. He is who he is, and there's nothing you can do about it. He is in control. That's a little scary. You are at his mercy. That's, okay, that's a lot intimidating. God is the only God, so you have no choice. He is who he is, and you can't do anything about it. And that, my friend can be very scary until you come to truth number four. 
Turn a few pages to Jeremiah chapter number 31. Jeremiah 31, verse number 3. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Truth number four about God. God loves you. This is a totally unexpected turn of events. Look, I don't know if you've ever taken a hard look at yourself. Not one of those surface things, just give yourself the benefit of the doubt things, but when you actually look hard at yourself and think about who you actually are, what you really find when you look really close is, yikes, I'm not very lovable. I'm not actually even likable in many cases. And you cannot find one thing in, within yourself that would cause anybody to really, honestly love you. What you'll find is a reason to fear, a reason to hide. You'll find, the, you'll find things that cause you shame. You don't find anything to love. But the one true God, he's not a rock, he's not a tree, He's not some force. He is the living God. And because he is living, he can love. And lo and behold, you find that his love is focused on you. The Bible is very, very, very clear on this point. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I have several books that I really, really like to read. So I read them basically almost every year. Probably the simplest book that I, ever, that I read is called The Little Woman. It is a story about a missionary whose name was Gladys Aylward. They made an actual, Hollywood actually made a movie of her life. They messed that up too, but that's a whole new story. Anyway, she was a missionary in China. And it's a very simple book. But there's one chapter, I, I love the whole book, but there's one chapter in it that I actually read it this week. I cannot read it without crying. Yes, I do cry, and I cry every time I read this. It, the title of the chapter is The God Who Loves. The story is so, it's so God that it, that it, it so demonstrates God that it, it's amazing. I'll give it to you in short form. I won't tell you the whole backstory, but Gladys Aylworth and a doc, a Chinese doctor, are going into a new area of China. Now, in our day and age, where you've got maps and GPS and all that, it's kind of hard to think this way. They went to the final, this village, and they said, "What's beyond this village?" And they said, "Nothing." They said, no, there's no, there was no other way, it doesn't fall off, there's got to be something. They said, there's nothing there, nobody's ever gone out there, there's nothing out there. And they thought, well, there's got to be something out there. And so they went, the two of them went marching. They went a day's march, walk out away from this city, out in the middle of no place, up in a mountain. 
And sure enough, for the whole day, they had not seen one person. Think about walking all day long without seeing one person. And so they, they're beside themselves. They don't have any food. There's no place to stay, of course. And so they don't know what to do. And so the Chinese missionary, sorry, the Chinese doctor, starts praying. He says, God, you've brought us out here. There's got to be somebody that you brought us out here to tell the gospel. Who are we supposed to talk to? He gets done praying, and Gladys Elwood says, why don't we sing? It's just the two of them out in the middle of nowhere. So they start singing. In the middle of the song, the Chinese doctor jumps up and says, I see our guy, and takes off running. He comes, comes back with two guys. Now, the, we don't use this word anymore. They're called llamas. Okay, that's not the animal llama. They're like monks. Okay, they live in a llamas area. If you think monks, that would be the neighborhood of the Oriental religion they were part of. He brings them down. They take their stuff and take them up to the llamas area, which is a building that is a, like a compound. There's 500 of these guys there. Now, here, they don't find this out until the end of what's going on. They go into this llamas area. Here's what's happened. These llamas collected something off the mountain, some kind of seed or something, and they would go once a year to sell the stuff. So two of these guys have went down into civilization, and they're selling this stuff, and they hear some guy yelling, salvation is free, there's a God who loves you. So that's news to them. So they go over, and he gives them what we would call a track, a piece of paper. The paper is actually John 3.16, the verse I just quoted. They have it written out on this piece of paper, John 3.16. These two llama guys go up in the, back up to the, where they live, and they all start discussing this thing. They tack it onto the wall, and all of them are trying to figure out, who is this God that loves? Why would he love us? They're, they're trying to explore that, and they can't figure anything out. For several years, they stare at this piece of paper trying to figure out what in the world could this mean. Finally, the original guy who got the paper says, I can't stand it anymore. I'm going and I'm not coming back till I can figure out who this God is. So he takes off and goes down and he ends up from town to town. He ends up at a China Inland Mission Station. And the guy says, I can tell you about that and gives him the gospel and gives him the books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He takes the four Gospels and goes back up to the hills. Now they have the Gospels, and they are studying this for all they're worth. And they still cannot figure out how, what this all means. They come to Matthew chapter number 28, which says, Go ye into all the world and preach the Gospel. They read that, and they said, This message is so important. And they've been told to go. Somebody's going to come. Can you imagine if anybody was waiting on you to read that verse and come to them? Somebody's going to come. So they start preparing. They make this huge place to all, for all of them to sit. They make chairs for everybody. They make a place for the speaker to sit. And they have it all ready, waiting. Two llamas are out there doing their duties. And they hear somebody singing. And they say, only a person who knows a God that love would be singing on this mountain. And ran down and got them. For the next week... They gave the gospel, they lived there, gave the gospel privately and publicly all day long to these, monk, these lamas. God loves. He loves you. And he'll go way, way out of his, think about all the pieces of that one little story that God used to get his love 
to them. My friend, there's nothing lovable in you. But for some reason that we do not understand, God has chosen to love, not the person sitting next to you, you, God. This living, true God has chosen to love you. That's truth number four about God. Truth number five. The Lord is the one true God. He is the living God. He's the everlasting king. He loves you. And number five, he treats you with loving kindness. He treats you with loving kindness. Have you realized yet that the way that people treat each other varies widely? Some people treat you rudely. Some people are obnoxious. Some people are just downright mean. Some people are proud. Some people are standoffish or aloof. Some are indifferent. Some are cordial. Some are pleasant. Some are nice. Some are kind. And some are loving. Now, each one of those ways, you've been treated that way by somebody. Every one of those things I listed off, you have been treated in your lifetime that way by somebody. But how does God treat you? He takes the two best ways, kindness and love, and combines them. This is what the passage tells us. We find him love. We find him loving with loving kindness. He deals with us with loving kindness. We have had love mixed with poor treatment before. We've had kindness that was done without love. But God treats you with loving kindness. Why? Well, the verse tells us, Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. The reason that God treats you with loving kindness is because he wants to draw you to himself. Let me ask you a very simple question. Is loving kindness always a pat on the head and a plate of brownies? Is that way loving kindness is always shown? We often judge the way that God works in our lives by that standard. Well, that didn't feel like a pat on the head or that didn't taste like brownies. And we judge God based on that standard. But let me ask you this. If you were in some of the downtown regions or a little north of downtown and some guy in the middle of the night offered you a plate of brownies, would you say to your kids, eat up with the nice man? <laughs> I don't think so. You'd say, I don't know what's in those brownies, but I don't think this is probably loving kindness here. Right? You would not judge that man. Oh, he's giving me brownies. He must be loving and kind. Loving kindness is not always sweet to the taste. I can remember Heidi when Heidi was just a little girl. It must have been maybe a year, year and a half. Back in the day when people had radios, do you remember that? They had radios. We had a radio, and it actually was battery-operated and electric. (laughs) 
shiny. <laughs> we had it plugged in in the living room. And Heidi, as a little girl, year and a half old, year old, had worked on the cord to where she pulled it out of the back. It was still plugged into the wall. As I turned to see her, she was going like this to put the end of that in her mouth. I caught it, and I dove across the room and grabbed it out of her hand right before she got it in her mouth. She bawled her head off like I was the meanest father in the world. But ask yourself, what was loving kindness? If I had walked over and said, nice little girl, good Heidi, or yanking it out of her hand. Even she knows that now. That was loving kindness that tore that death from my grip. My friends, God is dealing with you in loving kindness at this moment. He is trying to draw you to himself. You say, but it doesn't taste like loving kindness. What does that taste like? It doesn't feel like loving kindness. What does that feel like? He said it, and that's what he's doing. What is going on in your life right now? What is God doing in your life? I'm telling you right now, whatever it is, however it feels, it is loving kindness. Because that's how he works. He is trying to draw you to himself. We resist this so much. He convicts us of sin. And we resist that. Like, that's so mean, you would take that away from me. And we resist it when he's actually trying to save you, trying to keep you from some major difficulty in your life. He gives you this path. This is what you need to do. And you, I don't want to go down that path. My friend, that path is loving kindness. And if you would walk down it, you would find out that that's exactly what it is. What is he doing in your life at this moment? I'm telling you right now, whether you understand it or not, it is loving kindness. Some of you might say, be sitting here today saying, I don't know what I'm feeling. Sure doesn't feel like loving kindness. Right now, all of your sin is piling up in your mind. Right now, hell is a very scary place. Right now, judgment is piling up, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you're in trouble. And you say, how could this be loving kindness? God is bringing all of this into my life and now I'm understanding and I feel terrible and I'm so scared about my eternal destiny. How could this be loving kindness? I'm telling you that it is. Because in so doing, he's drawing you to the only answer that there is and that's himself. His death on the cross for you. And so in kindness, if he left you alone, you just keep floating through life like you've been doing, messing this whole thing up. But he lets this pile up in your mind, and right now you feel like maybe I had to grab the front of the pew. I'm a little, this is terrible. It's loving kindness. Because if you'll listen, he's drawing you to himself. An old songwriter said it this way, "'Twas grace, that's God's goodness, "'twas grace that taught my heart to fear.'" 
God's goodness made me scared to death. And then it goes on. Twas, and grace that fear relieved. What does he do? He lets you see what your real condition is and then shows you the person of Jesus Christ, the answer to your problem. And it is loving kindness that takes you on that journey because you just walk through life and end up in hell on, without thinking two things about it. But his loving kindness, whether you know the Lord at this moment or whether you don't, your life is operating on his loving kindness. And what are you trying to do? Trying to draw you to himself. Five truths about God. He is the true, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. He's the everlasting king. He loves you. And he's treating you with loving kindness. These are five truths about God. Let's pray.